0: This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Welcome back, everybody. We are here today with Dr. Gene Kilbourne. Oh man, where do I even start? Dr. Kilbourne is one of the most inspirational, respected, recognized women that we could even dream of having on our podcast we're so excited to have her here she's somewhat out of the public spotlight but in her field of work she's like a celebrity dr Kilborn has spent her life's work trailblazing through the marketing and advertising industry with passion and vigor and her work has changed the landscape of how women and girls are portrayed in the media as well as how substances like alcohol and tobacco are marketed she's even an award-winning documentarian on her work on the marketing of women I mean i could reel off her resume for an hour she's even inducted into the women's hall of fame for god's sake i mean what a badass all right let's dig in with dr gene kilborn so let's just get it going a good place to start is for for our listeners around the marketing and advertising world let's assume our listeners like a lot of the public don't analyze and assess the media and marketing the way that you've spent the majority of your life. Let's start with kind of a general sense of what the advertising industry's goals and strategies are.
1: So, I mean, their goal, obviously, is to sell products. One primary way to sell (laughs) products is to create anxiety, to create a sense that there's something missing or something that needs to be fixed and that this product will be able to do that. So, an example for women is an anti-aging cream, for example, that Uh, we all know actually will make no difference whatsoever but it plays on the anxiety that women are made to feel about uh, being feeling anxious or if they're selling something like cigarettes uh, they know that they're targeting young people so they want to emphasize rebellion and freedom and that sort of thing in their ads so they're but they're always trying to create some sort of need or, or play on some kind of anxiety that uh maybe there or maybe something that they've just created you know sort of out of thin air and then they do everything in their power to sell the products to us and of course the other thing they want to do is they want to get beneath our radar because we all believe that we're not influenced by advertising at all i mean we all believe that and everywhere i go what i hear more than anything else is well i just don't pay attention to ads they have no effect on me (sighs) so the, and we all believe that, you know, I hear this from people wearing Gap t-shirts, you know, and Budweiser caps, but they still say they're not influenced by advertising. So, and they're smoking Marlboros, you know, which is the brand that 50% of smokers smoke and they're, you know, drinking Bud Light. But anyway, they're not influenced no, by advertising. no, no. Yeah. And so the advertisers kind of need that. They need us to feel that we're superior to them. And that way they can kind of, we're not on guard and they can get, beneath our radar in a way, that we're, we're sitting there feeling superior and feeling like we're not influenced by any of this. And that's where they uh, work their magic.
0: That is so interesting. I meant to kind of preface with that because I was thinking <laughs> the way that I said it was we don't analyze and assess, or at least the majority of the public doesn't. So that means they are sitting under the radar. They're, they're moving kind of in a default mode, which to your point is what advertising wants us to do
1: right because if we were sophisticated about advertising if we if we were really paying attention to it and understanding what they were doing it wouldn't work very well and we're certainly not stupid and we're not brainwashed or anything like that it's just that for the most part you know we consider ads to be silly and trivial and we don't pay attention to them and we don't for the most part on a conscious level but that doesn't mean that they're not affecting us subconsciously and emotionally
0: and they know that we're not paying attention. So, they, so they, they play the right music, they have the right images to play to the fact that we're actually not paying that close attention.
1: Yeah. They reach us on on a mostly subconscious level. And sometimes they even make fun of advertising in their ads. Sort of, I remember one ad for Scotch or something that said, if you need to see a guy in an Armani suit, you know, in order to drink this Scotch, it's not for you. You know, kind of like, you know, (laughs) you're so sophisticated, you wouldn't be taken in by an ad as they take you in. Right. It's, they're very, well, they're, they're clever. And also they do have Um, an incredible amount of money to spend on psychological research, which has gotten much more sophisticated. You know, I've been studying this now for 50 years, half a century, so it's gotten way more sophisticated. And now they can do research that shows what part of our brain lights up, you know, when, when our emotions are stirred, even if we're not aware of it. And then they can, you know, play on that. So they do lots with kind of focus groups and Ne- neurological research and all sorts of other research so that they understand us um, much better than we think.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. You know, I was going to dig into this later, but I know that it's so much of your work has been behind media literacy and, and education around this. And I mean, to everything you're talking about right now, to be kind of a step ahead of what's being portrayed in radios and tvs and everything that we see so i mean i i'm i would love to dig into that right now i mean that is a that's a huge passion of yours
1: when i started studying the uh the ads and started looking at them and sort of i mean i didn't intend to make a career out of this but that is what happened but i was just interested and so i uh i started looking at them and that sort of thing and and eventually i realized that the advertisers we're never going to be in the vanguard of change. It, it's it's not it's profitable for them, mm-hmm. for us to feel bad about ourselves and to be addicted, frankly, because addiction is uh, their dream. The addict is their dream consumer. You know, oh uh, somebody who has who has to come back for more. So I realized that they weren't. I wasn't going to be directing my work at the advertisers. I was going to be trying to uh, get the public basically to become more aware of what was going on and media literacy i don't i'm not even sure that was a term back then i think it was i became an advocate for media literacy which Uh, basically means teaching people how to understand what's going on with the media and that doesn't just mean deconstructing advertising although that's part of it it also means teaching people things like the power behind the media when you watch a news show who decides what's news you know Mm. and who who decides what not to bring to your attention. So those are the kinds of things that most people aren't aware of because we've never been educated about them. Many other, most developed nations do teach media literacy starting early on. We don't, uh, not in any consistent way, but I've become an advocate for that. So when I began, there there were very few media literacy organizations, there are quite a few now, and it's become much more of a movement in this country uh, than it was before. And I do think that that's our primary way to bring about change, is to get people to be educated about all of this. And also, as I often say, to get people to think of ourselves as citizens rather than as consumers.
0: Ah, do you think social media has had a major uh, influence on the development of it, you know, expanding at this point?
1: Social media has its um, pros and its cons, obviously. So in some ways, I suppose it has uh, helped people to learn more about media literacy and that sort of thing. Social media also, of course, has been a huge gift to advertisers and enables them to target people very, very narrowly and to, to mine incredible amounts of data about us, which they then can use in their ads. So it's, it's a mixed bag, but I guess I would have to say it's a mixed bag, but more harmful than helpful.
0: That is exactly, well, I, I should have reframed the question. What I what I meant was the existence of social media and us recognizing that it is potentially not very good for us is what has mm-hmm. led to another push in the media literacy area.
1: Yes, that's that's definitely correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. As cool. people realize more a lot has come out about Facebook and about how bad Instagram is for teenage girls, for example. So all of that is helpful in getting people to understand that this issue is not trivial and that it actually does have a tremendous impact on people
0: yes
2: during your advocacy work have you ever gotten any big pushback from um ad, ad agencies or in, anybody in the media world kind of threatened you or said, hey we don't want you talking about this stuff have you seen that at all even in the subtlest ways
1: the main thing is that the advertisers have an incredible amount of power. They, they really basically control most of what goes on in the media. Not all, but most, you know, media are about delivering audiences to advertisers. That's where the money is, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's certainly true for Facebook and social media, but it's also been true for, you know, newspapers, magazines. So what that means is that magazines, for example, were always very careful not to put ads, you know, about car, I don't know about alcohol next to a car crash, you know, article i mean to be careful about the placement of ads but it's, it's certainly gotten a lot more sophisticated than that uh more recently because the advertisers had such power and such control over the media the best way they could attack me was to make sure that i didn't get a whole lot of publicity so when mm-hmm. i published my first book uh 20 years ago uh, can't buy my love uh, an editor of a women's magazine said i love your book but i can't touch it Absolute Vodka is one of our biggest sponsors. So that's that's how they silence their critics. You know, they make sure that they don't really get much uh, airtime. And in fact, I had an, an article that was all ready to go in uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association a long time ago in the 80s about alcohol advertising. And they accepted the article, but they told me that I couldn't name uh, the brands. Uh, so I couldn't name Budweiser. I couldn't name um you know johnny walker i had to sort of anyway so and i quite stupidly frankly refused to do that which meant that the article didn't get published which looking back was really a dumb decision (laughs) and i should have just gone along with it but i had principles you know so as a result a lot of my work doesn't get credited when people you know use it um because it it wasn't uh, put in print you know if you want to make sure your work doesn't get credited uh, spread the word via film, you know, rather than print, because oh. people don't feel, they don't feel any need to footnote or credit a film in the way that they would a, an article, particularly an article in a publication like um, JAMA.
2: I mean, that 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 kind of just baffles me, the fact that that didn't make it in. And it makes me wonder how much research and how much information never sees the light because of stuff like that.
1: Absolutely. And there's a wonderful organization called Project Censored, um, which deals almost exclusively with the huge topics that we don't get to see because of pressure from advertisers. And so that, you know, that's something that, again, media literacy would help with that, with trying to find out what's censored and why, and how do we get around it?
0: That falls in line with our mission as a podcast in general. I mean, the whole reason we're putting on this entire project is to inform the public. And and specifically around alcohol, as you know, but I mean, we know for a fact working in this world and living in this world that that information is squashed. I mean, it is it is it is you have to go find it. You know, and, and and more and more now there's a little bit of a push and a little bit of a trend uh with wellness being more front of mind and sober curious and these whole trends that are going on that that more and more people are, are understanding some of this information but we work in this world we work with people who are battling these addictions and it's it's tough a lot of people do not know how harmful this stuff is
1: right yeah. and and a lot of that information has been suppressed so when i started out In the late 60s, I started collecting ads about the image of women in advertising, so that was my first sort of interest. Then I began, you know, making slides of ads and putting together presentations. In the 70s, I started studying alcohol advertising and tobacco advertising. And in those days, uh, the American Medical Association still owned stock in alcohol and tobacco. Oh my companies. god. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And so and the National Council on Alcoholism, they had members of the industry, the alcohol industry on the board, oh which god. meant that they really didn't do anything about marketing or advertising or the ways in which people were targeted. They they solely what advertisers want us all to do is totally focus on the individual. You know, this is an individual's problem. This is a sick individual. This is Um, You know, a smoker who dies of lung cancer, that was his choice, you know, rather than looking at it as a huge public health problem, which is what it is in both cases. Having the industry on the board of organizations like the National Council on Alcoholism or having AMA own stock, which they no longer do in these companies, certainly made it much more difficult uh, for people to get information.
0: Wow. It's everybody's in each other's pockets, aren't they?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so that's the thing that's, that really has had and has changed to some extent, but people still aren't really aware of how advertising really works and and also particularly when they're selling uh, addictive products.
2: How has that changed and what were some of the big wins that you saw uh, like in your earlier career that kind of kept your passion going to continue to fight this fight?
1: Certainly with the anti-tobacco movement, we had some significant progress once we learned that Uh, tobacco smoke was harmful to non-smokers. I mean, extremely harmful to non-smokers. And so that took away the argument that this is just me and my individual choice. This is my freedom. You know, I can smoke. I can do whatever I want. You know, your smoking is killing other people, including often people you love, your children, Children. you know, your partners. Yeah. And so, and I remember when I was a kid, right, riding in a car filled with smoke. I mean, everybody (laughs) smoked. And, you know, and you'd see cars, windows rolled up, little kids in the back, smoke. Filled with smoke, so so that was that was the way it was then. Um, but once the focus shifted to different terms for it, secondhand smoke, or then it became clearer that this was a public health problem. And if it was a public health problem, then we could use some um, public health measures to counteract it. And what that would include would be things like banning the advertising, or at least controlling and regulating the advertising for these products. And raising taxes on these products. The single greatest way to reduce consumption of alcohol and tobacco by people is to um, raise the taxes. And you know, it's a difficult thing to talk about these days, raising taxes, but Mm -hmm. in fact, that really made a big difference. So I always said to my audiences, if you want to know what measures are going to be effective, what's really going to work to reduce consumption. Of these products look at what these industries are fighting the hardest against
0: ah.
1: and and what the industry i mean the industry was fine about don't drive drunk i mean they love that you know just put because that made it more like the individual's responsibility right so <laughs> right. use our products responsibly yeah. and don't drive drunk etc but they they really put their muscle into fighting against raising taxes on the products or having or changing the ads in any way or regulating the ads in any way. I testified before Congress about alcohol advertising uh, 20 odd years ago. And uh, what we were trying to do was just to simply get warning labels on the alcohol ads the way they are on the tobacco ads. And that was a huge struggle. The industry did not want that at all. Mm -hmm. So any kind of public health measure that's really gonna make a difference is the measure that the tobacco industry, the alcohol industry, are really going to be fighting very hard against and they give a huge amount of money to politicians on both sides of the aisle. They have an incredible amount of power.
2: I can imagine that the the fight against big tobacco gave the, you know, big alcohol like the perfect test run to be able to see what they were going to have to fight against. Kind of like you said with with big tobacco and how, you know, the secondhand smoke and the fact that smoking was harming people that didn't smoke. How does that map on to alcohol use and the fact that alcohol use affects families, affects domestic violence, workplace accidents, stuff like that. How do you feel like big alcohol has been able to kind of mitigate that conversation or try to get that out of the public eye
1: they always again try to focus just on the individual so that if something terrible happens because somebody's drunk it's just that one sick person right who was irresponsible i mean the whole use of the word responsible makes it seem as if addiction's a choice you know that Mm -hmm. you're that those of us who are addicts are simply irresponsible and if we were you know we just grow up we wouldn't there wouldn't be a problem so there's that that's one of the things that that total focus on the individual for one thing the other I, I you know this is an aside but i just remembered an ad that the tobacco industry used to place which basically blamed parents if their kids smoked and the what the ad basically said was your kids are smoking because you leave your cigarettes lying around so it's your fault you know that the, not, not that we're targeting them directly with our ads which of course they were the corporations always want to say to parents it's all up to you and if you know your kids are smoking or drinking or watching too much violence or whatever that's your problem not ours so that's the big thing that they do uh the other thing is of course as i said earlier they control the media they control the kind of information that we get and they control Um, politicians to a great extent so that there won't be any kind of public policy measures that will really make a difference Uh, oh and the other thing they do is of course in their ads the ads of course are all about how wonderful it is to drink you know the the romance the sex the the parties the good times and needless to say of course there's never any hint of the child abuse and the domestic violence and the uh, the car crashes and that sort of thing. Now, of course you wouldn't expect that from an advertiser, but because we're surrounded by these ads that, that glorify and glamorize alcohol and erase all the negative consequences, it becomes more difficult for those of us in public health to get across the message how absolutely devastating these public health consequences are.
0: I would love to ask this question because it's just as always on my mind about advertising creating a culture. I once had a sociologist tell me that, you know, it's not the advertisements or the advertising industry that's creating all these issues. It's it's they're just giving us what we need. They're just giving us what we want. It's the mind state of the society. I heard that and I almost automatically disagreed because I, I don't feel that. I feel like the advertising industry has created a culture. And, and I think you just touched on that. They make it seem like everybody's doing it, everybody's drinking, everybody's drinking at every occasion, and they've created this fantasy in our heads that is inaccurate. Not everybody's drinking every single place, everywhere. That's not what's going on out there, but they make you think that.
1: That, that's right. Absolutely. and that, and that And of course, they do that very deliberately. So alcoholics are going to drink. I mean, it doesn't matter whether there's advertising or not. What the advertising does is it creates a climate that normalizes high-risk drinking, normalizes addiction, makes it seem, as you said, that everybody's doing this and that it's all fun. You know, there's no negative consequences. And the truth is that 10% of drinkers consume over 60% of all the alcohol that's sold in this country. Right. 10%. Yeah. And, and I think it's 30% of drinkers consume over 90% of all the alcohol. Now, you, you only need to know two very basic facts to, to understand what this means. Roughly one in 10 drinkers is an alcoholic. You're 10%, right? Mm-hmm. And roughly one in three has a problem with alcohol. Maybe will become an alcoholic, maybe not, but is drinking in a high-risk way. So in other words, the alcoholics were to all get sober Think what that would do to the alcohol industry.
2: Wipe out 90% of
1: their business. (laughs) Well, 60%. And if the people who were drinking too much drink cut back, were able to cut back, that would cut back exactly 90% 90. of their business. So obviously, they are targeting alcoholics and people in trouble with alcohol. But they're also targeting people around them. They're enablers in a way. You know, they want to create a climate in which, so somebody who might think, well, gosh, my You know, my husband really is drinking way too much or my I'm really worried about my daughter and the kind of drinking she's doing. But the ads and in some ways, the media in general create this sort of illusion that, hey, this is fun. This is normal. You know, you're a prude. I used to get labeled Carrie Nation, you know, and people would think I was (laughs) a prohibitionist just for speaking out against, uh, you know, about some of the problems. So, Yeah. yeah, that's what they do. They're very, very clever about this. And the tobacco industry, by the way, does the same thing. And both the alcohol and tobacco industries really need to target children because brand loyalty starts very young. So you mostly develop your brand loyalty by the time you're in your 20s and you don't, most people don't switch brands. So what they're trying to do is to get even little, even children before they're going to smoke or start to drink to have good feelings about Budweiser, let's say, or Marlboro's. How are they doing that? Well, they do that. Sometimes they use um, like cartoon characters. You know, they're not supposed to. There are all these guidelines about what they're not supposed to do, but they do them anyway. They use cartoon characters. They use Santa Claus. They have animals. animals. They do all kinds of things that, you know, that are appealing to kids. And then they also uh, appeal to kids, particularly kids as they're getting a little older, with the whole idea that this is a way to be free and to be grown up to be a grown up. Mm. And to men, drinking in particular but smoking too, this is a way to be a real man. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a way to be macho and all of that. To women it's more it's actually more difficult, you know, but they offer women, well, with cigarettes, the famous, you know, infamous Virginia Slims, you've come a long way, baby. They linked <laughs> addiction with liberation. And so that's a common sort of theme in in advertising for addictive products. We all know those of us who have been addicted uh, that addiction is slavery, and yes. yet they they sell it as freedom, as a way you know, as a way to escape and to be free.
0: It's so fascinating because I mean we're talking about cigarettes and alcohol, and those are two of the most addictive substances on the planet. You know, it's 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 not that hard to get people addicted,
1: especially nicotine, um, by the way, which is more addictive than cocaine or heroin. And it's also harder to kick. And I certainly know that from personal experience. I mean, I quit drinking 45 years ago, and it was not that incredibly difficult for me to stop drinking once I understood that I was an alcoholic and that I wasn't going to be able to control it. But boy, was it hard for me to quit smoking. (laughs) It was so hard.
0: (laughs) I'm on day 417 (laughs) right now. (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) it It is so hard. It took me 30 years. It's an incredibly addictive drug. So most users of nicotine get addicted. That's not true even of most users of heroin. You know, most don't get addicted. Mm. Uh, Some do, of course, with devastating consequences. And even not all, certainly not all users of alcohol get addicted either by a long shot. But for those who do, you know, it causes incredible damage to ourselves and to the culture.
0: Yeah. Do you think alcohol in the world of marketing is the, is the most harmful thing being marketed?
1: Well, probably tobacco is the most harmful in terms of the um, numbers of people that it, how addictive it is. But you the, don't see that
0: You don't see tobacco advertising as much anymore. I mean, they've. No,
1: they've, no, no, you don't. No, no, you still do. I mean, it's still on you know social media, and it's still sure. they, they sell gear, and they they're still targeting kids in all kinds of ways, but not in ways that that the rest of us are really conscious of. So nicotine, you know, is is very addictive, and tobacco, you know, kills a whole lot of people, but including non-smokers, as we've already talked about. But alcohol certainly does, in some ways, even more widespread harm when you think about the, I think especially about the violence, you know, the family violence, the uh, the domestic violence, the child abuse, all kinds of things like that. The car crashes, the the accidents, and also just the, the crippling sort of lost potential of so many people, oh, you know, yeah. so many people who are, know creative talented in fact creative and talented people are this is anecdotal i'm not basing this on research but it seems to me they're more likely to be addicts you know Uh, that there's a thing that goes along with that so that when people get into recovery uh, they do so many wonderful things you know and and all of that talent is lost when people are trapped you know in the addiction so alcohol is harmful and in just so many different ways. And again, I always feel like I have to say this, I, I have no problem with people who can have a small amount, you know, uh, you know, and are not in trouble with it, uh, which is true for, you know, quite a few people. However, they're not the ones who are making it profitable for the alcohol industry. But there are certainly, you know, people who can enjoy a glass of good wine with dinner. Um, I could enjoy six, glasses of good wine with dinner, but (laughs) I never saw the point of one, (laughs) but, uh, you know, there are people who can do that and that's fine. And I have no problem with that at all.
0: Right. And and a lot of our audience is kind of falls into that gray area, you know, controlled drinking area Mm -hmm. that is by intention. We don't want to, you know, exclude those people because there's so much information for them to have as well. You don't have to be Mm addicted. You don't have to be, you know, on the verge of, of crossing the line into recovery. This is about everybody. This is about the whole, the whole ball of wax.
1: And almost everybody has somebody in their life for whom alcohol is a problem. Right. You know, almost everybody. I mean, uh, huge numbers of us, I think it's at least one in four are the children of alcoholics, you know, so there's that. Um, And, but everybody has somebody, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, whom we love and care about and who's struggling.
2: One of the things that, that, that I like to bring to light that we don't really pay attention to because people with heavy substance use disorders or severe substance use disorders, you know they, we talk about their potential being lost. But because of how normalized alcohol use is in our culture, even the, the moderate to, I mean, you know, heavy drinking today is, I think it's 14 drinks for a male, seven drinks for a woman in a week. E- even somebody that that you know spends three hours of their night, consumed by their alcohol use. I mean even if it's moderate, I mean the the loss in potential just from that time and their their ability to focus their attention on something more meaningful than than that alcohol use. I don't think we talk about that enough.
1: I agree Does with that- you. And and I especially think about that in terms of parents, you know, who are who become because when you're drinking, you know, you become slightly less available really to the people around you and i remember one of my nieces saying to me she was about 14 when i was about i don't know six months sober and she said you're so different and i said really how and she said well it's like you're here (laughs) and and i knew exactly what she meant i was present in a way that i hadn't been able to be and you're absolutely right that can happen with a relatively small amount of alcohol you know that you're less less present less able to do what maybe you maybe creative endeavor you might be doing, but also just less able to be in a relationship, you know, with somebody, especially with a child. So that's your, that's a really good point.
0: Well, and alcohol makes you think the opposite. I think so often, especially in the parenting world, you know, you have a long day at work, you have a rough day, whatever it is, and you come home and it's like, oh my God, I gotta, you know, be with, you know, loud kids or or demanding kids. And it's like, maybe a couple of pops is gonna make me be better, be more present, be, be more fun. And and that's what we te- <laughs> right. and that's what we tell ourselves. And and maybe it right. does work yeah. occasionally. And maybe you know sporadically you you do kind of step up to the occasion. But ultimately, it's it's actually a disservice.
1: Right. Right. And it's disingenuine. Yeah. You know. Yes. Yeah. And what you said, Patrick, about the um, heavy drinking, about the seven drinks and fourteen. I mean, that is the term we, we're using mostly these days is high risk. Because somebody who's drinking, you know, seven drinks a week is never going to think of themselves as a heavy drinker, yeah. but they might understand that high risk just means that, that that if you're drinking more than that, for women, for example, if you're drinking more than that, you're at higher risk for breast cancer, you know, yeah. so that's, you know, so that's something to consider. So there's all kinds of ways that people are at risk, even if they're not addicted or even on the verge of addiction uh, but they still they, you know they shouldn't drive, they shouldn't be operating machinery, they sh- et etc. There are all kinds of ways pregnant women of course shouldn't drink at all. so there are lots of ways in which one can be at risk even if one is not uh, an alcoholic. Well, so let's
0: backpedal a little bit since you did touch on a little bit of your personal stuff um, and we don't have to dig deep into that. I just want to hear a little bit about your journey and and what created the passion that led you into this whole path.
1: I actually started this uh, looking at ads and everything before I got sober, but I was like most alcoholics, I was very high functioning. Uh, I had legendary tolerance like most alcoholics, so I could drink. (laughs) a lot, and not seen, um impaired. In fact, it was kind of funny in college when men would try to get me drunk, and I would just drink them right <laughs> under the table, you know, but <laughs> they, they didn't, they did not succeed. And people in those days, of course, thought, well, boy, remember people saying things like, oh, he can really handle his liquor as if that were a good thing, you know, but yeah. now we know that being able to handle your liquor is probably a sign that you're an alcoholic. So I was high functioning. I mean, you know, I, I graduated from college, I, you know, got a master's degree, I was employed etc what got me interested in the uh, collecting ads was that my involvement in the women's movement and also that I'd done I'd worked a lot in media in very low level jobs because that's all that were available for women in those days but I went to Wellesley College and then had to go to secretarial school to get a job so that oh, <laughs> that gives wow. you some idea <laughs> i was involved in the women's movement and then i was also interested in the media and i'd also Uh, done some modeling. Modeling was one of the few ways that women could make a lot of money in those days. And, you know, there was a lot of pressure to do it, to, you know, join pageants and to model and that kind of thing. And you were supposed to feel simply grateful for the opportunity, but it was really soul destroying. And if you feel like your value is entirely based on how you look, you know, it's going to be very short-lived and doesn't really have anything to do with who you are. So it was not a happy experience but it was a way you know i mean i would model and make some money and then i'd quit and go back to being a waitress you know i mean it was not like i had a lot of choices but that left me with a lot of interest in the whole idea of the image and beauty and the whole power of the image so that's why i started collecting ads although i again i didn't intend to make a career out of it but i put together the slide presentation and eventually took, took it on the road and made a film of it and that sort of thing the, the journey to sobriety was slightly different but I, because i was uh, there were so many stereotypes about alcoholics in those days. I remember going to a doctor uh, once when I was probably 25 or 26, and and he he did the usual, he because they were all men uh, almost uh, did the usual checklist of you know do you what you know, blah 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 do you smoke and yes do you drink yes and then he said how much do you drink he was kind of bored how much do you drink and I said I remember sitting there thinking what should I tell him. <laughs>
0: You know, a <laughs> couple of couple I of I can't drinks. tell
1: him the truth no i can't tell him the truth but i don't really want to so i finally said oh i don't know about a bottle of wine a day which was actually less than i was drinking but plenty right oh yeah <laughs> and yeah. he looked at me for a minute he's that got his attention he looked at me and then he said well don't worry honey you're not the type to be an alcoholic oh and and of course that's what i wanted to hear but in those days people would look at a Young woman, especially a young Wellesley graduate, you know, who was had a job, and think alcoholism? Never, no way, right? So Mm -hmm. anyway, that that happened. But I, you know, eventually, I don't want to get too 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 much in the weeds about this. But I, you know, I got uh, I got some good therapy. I I, you know I learned more about all sorts of things. But I was still I suffered from depression, which is not uncommon for alcoholics and. Mm -hmm. I also believed falsely that alcohol was uh, curing or helping my depression. Yes. Of course, it was making it worse. But I realized that the X in every equation in my life was alcohol, and that it was time. I, 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 there was alcoholism in my family. I certainly was familiar with with it and with the devastation that it causes. So, so I I quit, well, <laughs> and then my life really took off. I mean, it really took off. And uh, it was just it was almost as if I were a coiled spring that was just waiting for the You know for the alcohol to be gone so i could really do what i really wanted to do and was capable of doing
0: awesome but that that was
1: 45 years ago so it's been really it's been a great journey i feel incredibly blessed because the truth is as you know robbie most alcoholics never get that shot most most alcoholics don't recover Mm -hmm. and don't even really have it to have have a shot at recovery so we're the lucky ones 100%
0: thank you for sharing that you're in good company with Patrick and I we're both in recovery and and we know all too well of what you're talking about and I think our listeners will really enjoy hearing that as well because it's all about the back end and what it looks like you know coming out on the other side Uh, often that irrational fear of what life would be like without it is 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 just that it's irrational and and it's really oh I
1: used to say that without without alcohol I'd put a gun to my head yeah and you know what i realized later was that alcohol is the gun you yeah. know uh, but i really seriously thought i could not live without alcohol that i would not be able to survive and i know most alcoholics feel that way and the one thing i'd love to convey to uh, people who are struggling with this is the incredible joy that's on the other side you know the joy and the freedom when you're when you're able to to stop and and not have this Poison cours- coursing through your system anymore, and the, just the amazing, uh, yeah, the, just the joy, and also of course the, you know, the, the sort of bonds that we all feel. I think those of us who are in recovery together, you know, that we all know. Whenever I meet another alcoholic or another addict, I know one. I know a couple of things. One is that we've known despair. <laughs> I mean, we've known what it's like to be in hell, the trenches, and the depression and the anxiety and everything else. And then we've also known the incredible. Uh, relief and joy that comes with being able to um, cut those chains yeah
0: wow I want to touch back on the media literacy because I think that is a perfect place to uh leave our listeners you know thinking and 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 a little more educated and aware
1: as I said most developed countries do teach media literacy in the schools and they start you know in kindergarten and they um So it's something that, so kids learn early on, you know, let's say they might learn to look at an ad and see that what's being sold is like, if you use this product, you're going to have more status or you're going to be, you know, uh, more popular or something like that. So they learn to deconstruct ads in that way. But they also learn uh, things like something like, I think now it's down to five corporations. It might just be three, control 90% of all the information that we get everything the books we read the films we see the social media everything is controlled by about three or maybe five corporations and and these corporations are all you know they're they're in the business of making money uh their boards of directors are almost entirely um white men that's beginning to change a little bit but not much really so there's a certain point of view that's being expressed you know by these corporations too so And just understanding that is something that people can learn to identify. So when they, when they're targeted by, by an ad or by something else, they can begin to understand where this is coming from. A huge part is what we've already talked about a little bit is the news. I mean, who decides what's the news, you know, and mostly follow the, if it bleeds, it leads rule, you know, that Mm -hmm. people are drawn to violence and chaos and, you know, that sort of thing. They will, they will read a story about that. And so that's, that's what they use because that's what reels in viewers. And again, most programs, magazines, social media sites are in the business of selling viewers to advertisers. You know, that's that's their business. So, uh, the more people who tune in to hear about this latest horrendous mass shooting, let's say, more people are there for the ads. Now, what we're missing is any kind of background about this about. You know who's who's selling the guns and how how much profit are they making and how why is it so difficult in this country to have any kind of gun control uh, laws and or anything even even mild things like background checks so again, media literate people would begin to understand that and another huge place where we need media literacy is in political advertising because political advertising is filled with disinformation and with emotional you know appeals and that sort of thing that have nothing to do with with the facts i i'm not in favor of banning things in general but i wouldn't mind banning political advertising and have the candidates speaking to us you know
0: my mind goes to just consumerism
1: and and also that's a good point about i mean consumerism also i mean we're encouraged to buy tons of stuff right and we're also encouraged to buy new stuff rather than to work with what we have or god forbid get things repaired you know (laughs) um i mean i tend to drive my cars for like 13 years 14 years you know i mean that's just not good at all for the car manufacturers but but it's better for the planet um and so one of the things that this rampant consumerism is doing as we're now learning is is basically destroying our planet so something has Uh. to be reined in if we're going to be able to save ourselves and our children
2: yeah, and why would we want to care about any of that when we can just drown it out with some booze?
1: <laughs> well, there's that. And and I think there is I think there is this underlying current of, you know, this is a tough time and you know, I understand why, you know, alcoholism rates, drinking rates have have risen during the pandemic, you know. But I also could imagine what hell that is for people. I mean, especially trapped at home, you know, twenty four seven with somebody whose drinking is out of control.
0: Yeah. Interesting. You bring that up because that's people ask me about that all the time, working in that field. And, and yes, there was an absolute uptick and there still continues to be an uptick, but there's also somewhat of a silver lining on the other side of things where people are a little more focused on wellness. People are backing up and recognizing that they maybe t- took it a little too far while being isolated and, and under the pandemic. So there, you know, we're seeing in the mental health and wellness world, People are making some effort now and and, and looking to, to make some changes and, and talk about it,
1: which is our goal. Yeah, and that's great. And the other thing that's happening, I think, is people are much more open about speaking about recovery, you know, I mean, it used to be that it was so shameful, particularly for women. When I first, you know, got sober, (laughs) support groups that I went to, um, there weren't that many women. I mean, maybe, maybe a third, maybe a quarter. There also weren't that many young people. And now, of course, there are lots of women and lots of really young people. So it's very, uh, that's a good thing, I think. I don't think it's a good thing when uh, celebrities talk about Um, being in AA or something like that I think that's not such a great thing but I think it is great if they talk about being in recovery and being you know how happy they are and how their lives have improved and that sort of thing so I think that that's important
0: oh interesting interesting I mean that's what we do here we are normalizing the conversation you know that's all we want to do is is make it less stigmatized less shameful less judged you know you're not weak you Mm -hmm. don't have any you know all those things. And, and, and
2: we really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for being here and for your time. This has been an enlightening conversation. We got so many good little bits of information that we're going to be able to pass on to our listeners. This has been great.
1: Okay. Well, thank you so much.
0: The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit DilworthCenter.org or call 704 372 6969 or visit the Blanchard or call 704 288 1097